The Dalai Lama once said that today, more than ever before, life must be characterized by a sense of universal responsibility, not only nation to nation and human to human, but also human to other forms of life. Join me in conversation with some of the world's most creative thinkers to explore the importance of ethics to this responsible decision-making in today's technologically infused world. Artists, entrepreneurs, scientists, journalists, academics, and beyond navigate the gray, the blend of right and wrong, of opportunities and risks on all sides of our most important challenges, whether gene editing, civilian space travel, or artificial intelligence. They also probe the age-old and more ethically black and white behaviors, such as sexual misconduct, human trafficking, and life-threatening inequality. Our guests endeavor to transcend religious, political, national, and ethnic perspectives, but recognize the inevitable biases we all bring. The term ethics can make us uncomfortable. At the Ethics Incubator, we confront the E-word head-on. It may be inconvenient or even unclear, but ethical conundrums underpin almost every headline and affect almost every human choice. With truth under threat and the boundaries of humanity blurring, I believe that ethical decision-making tethers us to our humanity. As always, we welcome your thoughts. So thanks for being here. And, and before I start in on many questions about your extraordinary new book, let me ask you to take us back. And you've done a lot of writing on incredible things that's had a lot of traction, not least a wonderful article I saw on introversion. And I'm wondering if you can just take us to how you got to such a passion for writing about truth and the, and the management, the collection management verification of knowledge. Sometime in my teens, actually, I got interested in philosophy. I started reading Bertrand Russell. I was in, I didn't know it all at the time, but I was, I was triple canceled because I'm an atheistic homosexual Jew. I've always in some ways known that about myself since I was five. So I, I couldn't really follow the standard scripts. And somewhere in there, I became aware that people like me were, were oppressed and lied about. When I got to college, I began doing work on history of science and began discovering that this was not something we should think about as work that just goes on in labs in a mechanical style, but it's a very social enterprise and it's a kind of political system. I wrote about history of geology, some of which is folded into this latest book, and I just became fascinated. Um, so that's both free speech and the production of knowledge have been the centerpiece, a centerpiece of my career since my late 20s now. And so I read something about you that I don't know if it was you who described yourself this way or somebody else as a radical incrementalist. Right? <laughs> yeah, I've tried on a lot of terms for myself, Susan, because I don't really know what I am. I don't fit in any of the conventional boxes, but, but that was one of them. Yeah. But what does that mean? A radical incrementalist is someone who believes in fomenting revolutionary change on a geological timescale. Okay. Well, that's a great definition. <laughs> we don't always understand the reasons for our ethics, for example, and our norms, and we need to be humble about that. I couldn't agree more on the humility, especially in today's complicated world, but even with respect to ourselves. And the reason why I wanted to start with some of these earlier life questions is that in looking at some of your work, I felt like some of your earlier writing and thinking was very much about understanding who we are personally, and I felt that the book was an incredible complement to that about looking about 
looking at how we get knowledge about what the world is. And the two together, I thought were really fascinating. So before we get to the book, can I just ask you to comment on the wonderful article on introversion? It became a very <laughs> famous article. As I yeah. said earlier, it's something that I could relate to and that I think a lot of people really don't understand what it means to be an introvert. How did you come upon uh, on that topic? <laughs> well, I, I discovered I was an introvert at some point in college when everyone else was partying and I was reading, though I, I love to socialize in an intimate way. I just hated the parties. I didn't understand why any human being would ever want to do that. They just exhausted my energy. And a number of years later, I discovered the introvert-extrovert distinction. And I was fed up. I was feeling bitchy about it. So I wrote a bitchy piece of humor for The Atlantic in 2003, and they dropped it in the back of the magazine just for fun. We thought nothing of it. And then it went viral and it became my all-time bestseller and it will go on my tombstone. And it's called Caring for Your Introvert. And it accidentally launched the introvert's rights movement. And, and now I can only claim partial credit for this, but a little. Now there are people all over the country, all over the world who understand what introverts are. And when we tell them, you know what, I need some quiet right now. I'd like you to go away. Nothing personal. They're starting to understand that. And, you know, that's, that's kind of a breakthrough, I think. I think it's an incredible breakthrough. And also what, it, what I didn't understand and what I think many don't understand is that it's about where we draw energy from. Yes, and correct. That, that, that extroverts draw energy from being in these larger social or, or settings or settings with more people uh, and sort of wilt when they're on their own. And introverts, if I'm understanding you correctly, are, are quite the reverse, that we need yeah. socializing but need some sort of regeneration time alone. That's right. It's, it's not about shyness or awkwardness or misanthropy. Um, though I, I will admit to being a little bit misanthropic, but it's about where you get your energy and do you feel exhausted after two hours of socializing or do you get energy from that and feel revved up? Like so many people, Carl Jung pointed this out um, way back at the beginning. I'm in an IE marriage. My, my husband's an uber extrovert and it's, you know, we've been cooped up together in the pandemic. So it's kind of exhausting for both of us, but it's also <laughs> constantly recharging for both of us. So that's my world. Moving from that, though, to the constitution of knowledge. What is the constitution of knowledge? And, and let's start with that. And then I'd like to dig into def two different aspects of the book. Well, I'll give you the one line definition, then we can dive into any, any aspect you want. The constitution of knowledge is our social system for keeping collectively moored to reality and converting disagreement into facts. And it turns out Every society has problems keeping itself moored to reality and not going to war over questions like, you know, uh, which God should we worship? And only one system in all of 200,000 years of human history has figured out how to avoid those wars and stay moored to knowledge. And that's the constitution of knowledge. So one of the things that I loved about the book is that when I look at it from my ethics perch, I believe that we have many, many stakeholders in creating an ethical society and that it isn't all about you know, what did Facebook do today? Or what did a particular politician do today? And what I loved about the book is that it basically, if I understand it correctly, it gives all of us responsibility in the development and the surveillance and the deployment of knowledge. And I'm wondering if you can talk about whether you see different roles for different people, whether you think that experts still have an outsized role in producing knowledge or whether we're all, whether it's completely democratic, everybody has the same, the same voice. Well, big questions. And the answer is yes and no. In one sense, the constitution of knowledge is far and away the most democratic, open, liberal, 
and individualistic of all knowledge-making systems, because the others all ultimately rely on some kind of authority or violence, you know, a priest or a prince or a politburo who says, here's what we're going to believe, and if you don't like it, you can go to jail or be outcast or be murdered. That's actually the usual way of doing it. Constitution of Knowledge says anyone can contribute. I can go out and hunt for fossils right now. I can discover a new species of bird. I can come up with an argument, publish it in journalism, and who knows? Maybe I could even write a book about it, and people like you, impressive people, will take it seriously. No other system allows that kind of, kind of access, that kind of democracy. But here's something else that's true. Knowledge making is really, really, really hard. It requires a lot of training a lot of mastery of protocols, because the constitution of knowledge is not just an unstructured marketplace of ideas. That doesn't work. That produces chaos. It's got all kinds of institutions that are directing resources and setting standards. It's got all kinds of norms and ethics, everything from don't lie to here's in our business, here are the steps you have to go through in order to be taken seriously. So inevitably, the large bulk of the people who are working every day to build reality, to discover knowledge. They are professionals. If you think about what it takes to become a, a biologist or a professor at LSE or even a journalist, it's, it's a lot. So it's both. I say my formula is that not everyone in society has to be truth-seeking because truth-seeking is a job. It's a career. But people in society do need to be truth-friendly. So no, not everyone is going to go out and discover a coronavirus vaccine or have any idea how to do that. On the other hand, it is irresponsible and truth hostile if we simply reject what Tony Fauci is telling us because we don't want to hear it and refuse to get vaccinated and endanger our friends, family, and country. There's so much in what you just said, and I want to go into some of the different branches, but there's a one very fundamental point. You know, you use the words or the phrase truth friendly. And one of the things that came up particularly in the US around 2016, or when we started hearing phrases like alternative facts was a very fundamental question that is actually the final paper question in my Stanford class, hmm. which is does truth matter? And if so, why and how? Because at that time, when I went to the Stanford campus, there were students passing out bracelets, these plastic bracelets that said truth matters. And I couldn't believe that in the sense that I couldn't believe that was ever in question. And I think that basically what you're saying and what we're seeing in the example that you give with coronavirus and vaccines and the like is a perfect one. We're seeing that there are plenty of people who think truth just doesn't matter or that truth is up for negotiation or that truth can be commandeered via our cell phones or curated to be the truth that we want that is convenient for us. How do we overcome that challenge? It's one thing in an authoritarian society where you have a dictator commandeering the narrative and saying, this is the truth for us and this is the way it shall be, as you said earlier. But in a democratic society, how do we get people to recommit to the importance of truth and to, the re to recommit to the importance of reality, which is one of the wonderful themes of your book? Let me answer that by coming at it kind of a little bit sideways, if that's okay. Course. We have a problem with in America right now is not a general public that's contemptuous of truth. It's a problem of forking realities, split realities. So, for example, majority of Republicans, a solid majority, believe that the people who are responsible for the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th were Democrats in Congress. They really believe that. The rest of the country believes that Donald Trump and his movement were primarily responsible for that. 
You also have forking realities about vaccination, for example. There are signs of forking realities on climate change. So it's not that people have contempt for truth. It's that we're now seeing alternative realities, uh, a split universe. Now, this is not an uncommon state of affairs in human society. Over 200,000 years, it happens all the time. You know, Protestants versus Catholics, two different realities. And the typical way we solve this is that societies melt down and people go to war or they cease to be governable or they succumb to oppressive regimes or just chaos. And unfortunately, we're seeing some initial signs of some of those patterns in the US right now. Governing is getting extremely difficult. And even Republicans who believe in vaccination are not sure how to say that anymore in the environment in which they live. This is, as you said, Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts. So that's the first thing to say. I don't think it's hostility to truth. I think it's confusion and schism. Second big point, you're being manipulated. Why is reality forking? Is it just general trust in institutions? Is it because of disappointing, you know, working class, male incomes, decline of religion? I work at Brookings. I do policy. We can have those conversations. But the elephant in the room is this. For the last 50 years, both the left and the right, the extremes of both have been waging an all-out attack on the constitution of knowledge. It begins with stuff like postmodernism in the academy, and then it spreads to the right. It becomes talk radio, Rush Limbaugh's attack on what he called the four corners of deceit, which are academia, science, journalism, and government, which is pretty much the whole reality-based community. You get the rise of counter media establishment, primarily on the right. And then you get something that takes it to the entire next level, something we have never seen the likes of in modern American history, if ever. And that's the rise of a politician and a movement that are deliberately adapting and applying Russian-style mass disinformation tactics to the United States. The last time we saw anything remotely comparable to that, even arguably, was in the 1850s, when Southern secessionists wallpapered the South with alternative reality propaganda, claiming that the North was about to sweep down and conquer them and destroy their way of life. That did not end well. And we need to understand that what's happening to us now is the deliberate use of propaganda tools to divide, dominate, disorient, and ultimately demoralize us. It's what Vladimir Putin was doing in 2016, but it is now being done by domestic actors for profit and power. Now, what am I talking about? To me, the worst day of the pandemic was that day, I think it was in April of last year, when Trump tweets out, three tweets that take the form, liberate Michigan. What's he doing there? He is deliberately dividing and polarizing the country over mask wearing and, and closures. And he is knowingly polarizing, knowing it's going to be good for politics. And then, of course, you get the attacks on Fauci. You get all of this picked up by conservative media. Most important, the conservative, the MAGA base, is now in on it. Disinformation is not a spectator sport. It's a participatory sport. It's really fun to invent this stuff and watch it spread online and believe well, and it. Now anybody can do it because we have social media. You don't have right. to have access to the Atlantic or, uh, or a think tank like Brookings or the New York Times or the Washington Post. And right. Yeah. It used to be, you know, you needed to have a printing press or, or something. Now it's very easy to do. This is way fun to do. Our natures as humans are to do this. Um, to talk to our friends to decide what to believe and then spread that around and go down rabbit holes. It's a miracle that we don't do that 
on a daily basis. So now the base is leading this alternative reality, and we are seeing this profound epistemic split in America, the kind that we're just not accustomed to dealing with. A couple of things I want to I want to draw from. One is you use the word deliberate or intentional, uh, knowing. This is a very, very different kind of situation. This isn't a case of we thought the world was flat and then we discover it's round. This is intentional weaponization of falsity for ends that are not in the interest of anybody except the manipulator. What struck me so much in what you just said and in the book, you talk a lot about values in the book. In my own book, I talk about a similar, I talk about principles. And what really what you just described with Michigan is basically saying, even when human life is at stake, we're willing to do this. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the role of values in the constitution of knowledge and what happens, you know, is there a polarization? Is there a division of values? Or is it that we actually have values in common, but people see them coming to life in different ways? Role of values is stressed again and again in the book, as is the role of institutions. The, the problem with, you know, if you ask most Americans where knowledge comes from, they'll say marketplace of ideas, free speech. If you have free speech, the better ideas will rise to the top. Well, it turns out that's epistemically naive. In fact, if all we have is an unstructured, open platform. People will use those to draw attention to themselves, however best serves them, whether it's truthful or not. They will use outrage and manipulation to do that. Or very often, they'll simply talk to their friends, find people like themselves, decide what to believe. It may or may not have anything to do with reality. So actually, an unstructured epistemic environment, um, you know, just pure free speech on a peer-to-peer basis, falls apart. And that's what got humans into so much trouble for the first 200,000 years. It's what relegated our societies to ignorance and oppression and warfare. So constitution of knowledge comes along about the same time as the US constitution and says, no, you need some structures to structure the way we interact with each other. It's not gonna be random anymore. You're gonna have rules and you're gonna have institutions that use those rules and you're gonna pit bias against bias. You're gonna have checks and balances. It's going to be decentralized. You're going to have things like courts and Congress, formal institutions, informal institutions like parties. But the thing that all the founders tell us again and again, like they're shouting it from the rooftops, is what Ben Franklin famously told the woman from Philadelphia who asked, so what kind of system have you given us, Dr. Franklin? And he replies, a republic, if you can keep it. What he and Adams and Madison and Washington and all the others say is this whole system rests not on a piece of paper we call the Constitution. That's worthless if we don't have the values that support it. And those values include things like truthfulness, lawfulness, forbearance, that is the willingness to lose an election, recognize the legitimacy of of, of a government even if you didn't vote for it. Does that sound like something that's a problem right now? And they said, if we don't have what they call Republican virtues and what we call, I think, civic values, civic norms, it all falls apart. That's exactly true with the Republic of Science, with the Constitution of Knowledge. Even more true because there's no written Constitution of Knowledge. There are no courts that enforce it. It's all based on a deal that we make with each other, which is, you know what? I can believe anything I want to believe and say anything I want to say. But if I want to make knowledge and claim to have made knowledge and demand that it be placed in textbooks, there are all kinds of things I'm going to have to do. 
I'm going to have to state a hypothesis, then it's going to have to go out for testing. And then a whole bunch of institutions are going to look at it, and a lot of experts and a lot of them will be very critical of me. And then I might lose the argument. I'll have to accept that. You know, I might not change my mind, but it won't go in the textbooks. I'll have to try something else. So there are all of these norms. In order to live by these values, we also have to be willing to listen. And it strikes me that social media, yes, we are all manipulated and there's this just barrage of material that comes our way. And this algorithmic manipulation of what truths end up in our inbox. But there's also a decreasing willingness to listen. And when I think about things like postings in various publications that tell you how long it's going to take you to read it, it seems like we're suffering from an epidemic of societal impatience. Nobody will read anything if it's more than five sentences. Also have to be willing to accept that you're wrong. Somebody else is, a, you know, or at the very least, somebody else's competing belief has merit or deserves to exist. All of that is, is exactly right, Susan. And you, you know, it's, it's not that every individual needs to accept that, that they are personally wrong. Einstein died refusing to believe in quantum mechanics, and he was wrong about that. The genius of the Constitution of Knowledge, like the U.S. Constitution, is it doesn't ask us to walk into the room feeling uncertain all the time. It understands we're going to be dogmatic and pig-headed, and it uses that as raw material. That's the driver. That's the energy for the conflicts, the scientific and journalistic and legal conflicts that drive knowledge forward. But we do have to have humility in the sense of understanding this big system we've set up, the one that put the shot in my arm that's protecting me right now, it's smarter than I am. If it says I'm wrong, you know, I can go to my grave thinking that eventually I'll be vindicated and maybe I will. But right now I'm going to say, you know, I can, I can live with that. And it's my duty to live with that system because the alternative to that system is ignorance and violence and the, the kinds of patterns we're seeing in the US. And yeah, what you say is exactly right. There's a deep ethical dimension to this. You know, we, we're not, we don't have to go to church or synagogue and act like scientists and say, well, how are we going to perform an experiment to find out if Jesus was born of a virgin or whatever? So no one's saying that. But we are saying when we make a claim that something is factual in a public way so that we, we want other people to respect and believe that, we got to do some stuff. We got to do it right. And that's our obligation. And if we're not willing to do that, fine, we go on our way, but the system's going to ignore us and say we're wrong and pay no attention. Like a lot of people think Elvis Presley is alive, but guess what? We're not going to send him a social security check. I had the privilege of interviewing Sir Salman Rushdie. And at one point he talked about someone attending one of his book events and going at it with him about something factual. And uh, his response was something along the lines of, it's not because you believe the world is flat, that the world is flat and the world doesn't need you to believe it's round in order for it to be round. The other thing in, in what you just said, I think comes back to what we were discussing early in the conversation, which is it comes back to this big sense of what the constitution of knowledge is for the world and for society versus how we are as human beings at individually, whether we're introverts, whether we're humble, to what extent we're willing to sort of meld the, 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 the self of who we are as, an, as, a, as a self, who we are as a soul, who we are as an intellect with this bigger question of the constitution of knowledge. We've been stressing the role of individual ethics, and that's very appropriate. But I believe that I had a blind spot when I wrote my first book about this 28 years ago. It's called Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought, because it's primarily about 
individual ethics, the things we need to do as individuals to get science and journalism and truth right. I believe what I missed then and what most people still miss is that the propagators of those values, the incentivizers, the places that make it work are institutions. And they are the crucial ingredient because they're what's under attack right now, both from disinformation and propaganda on the right and what we haven't talked about, which is cancel culture. It's very important to say what we've been saying, which is people need to have a truth-friendly attitude. They need to take seriously their obligations uh, if, they're, if they're making factual claims. But we can't expect them to do that all by themselves alone. We also need the strong institutions like the schools and universities, the newsrooms, the journals and, and peer review, the courts of law that embody these values, train people in those values, reward them for following them, marginalize them in some cases for defying them, and that form us as human beings so that we take the constitution of knowledge or the US constitution seriously. And, and far too often that's left out. You know, We imagine we're just preaching to 300 million individuals and we're not. We're defending the institutions that shape and propagate these norms. And, and these institutions that are going to live a lot longer than we will, and that have a longer term responsibility as well. And I would add to what you just said, which I, I completely agree with, the responsibility now that corporates have. I talk about it as scattered power in ethics terms, but when you are a scatterer of power, when you are a social media company giving the power to 3.4 billion people around the world to do good or do harm, you are also responsible when you are putting that power out there. Talked a little bit about free speech. It has been long accepted as you know, almost unquestioned a good. Increasingly, not so much. And you talk a lot in your book about the dilemma uh, in academic institutions. So if we can start with that. Faculty students are afraid to speak up. They're afraid of what's going to happen if they make a mistake. And I'm, I'm constantly saying to my students, you know, ditch perfectionism. But it's very hard when you're in a situation where they fear and faculty fear that anything they say can't even retract it. It's going to end up on social media. It's going to end up personal attacks, et cetera. Where do we, how do we get out of this situation we're in where there is so much fear to speak up? How do we get out of the situation where some of the free speech is indeed this manipulative, you know, the, the manipulation that you discussed, or even worse, really harmful, the kind of thing where some of the social media companies are saying, okay, we're drawing a line. You don't get to put false information about COVID out there. It's in close accord with what I'm hearing from students and faculty in many interviews and what the polls show too, which is that there is an atmosphere of chilling and of fear. And it's not because a numerical majority of either faculty or students, including on the left, want to live in an impeded and fearful environment where they could step on a landmine at any moment and blow up. It's because a numerical minority is exploiting, we're back to disinformation and propaganda. They're exploiting powerful tools of epistemic warfare to alter the environment in which you're functioning. And here we get back to you're being manipulated. So you asked two very big questions about that. Each one of them is large. One is what's the role of free speech? And the other is how to get out of this. And and maybe if I could, I could sort of, again, come to that sideways by explaining what I think, the, how I define the problem. The moral of the story is you're being manipulated. And one way to manipulate is the Trump and MAGA and Putin way. And that's firehose of falsehood, flood the zone with shit, conspiracy bootstrapping, 
information hijacking, aka trolling, and all these other techniques that, that Russians pioneered and that MAGA now applies. There's a very different way to do it. And it's ancient. Alexis de Tocqueville came to America in 1835 and said the biggest threat to democracy is not from the government. It's from this culture where people are afraid to speak out in defiance of what seems to be majority opinion. Um, and John Stuart Mill, greatest advocate of free speech probably ever in 1859, says exactly the same thing about England. The problem's not the government. It's that too many people feel socially coerced not to speak out. And they're right. So another way of manipulating people in the epistemic environment for political advantage is to use socially coercive tactics to intimidate and punish and deplatform people who, for whatever reason, politically you want to dominate. Now, one way to do that is, you know, the old fashioned way you execute them or throw them in jail, burn them at the stake, send them to Siberia. You don't need to do that. It turns out. It turns out that social media gives you an extremely efficient way in a very short period of time to cause really very severe social consequences to virtually anybody. If you organize a campaign against them, you can often get them fired so, or at least put their livelihood in doubt. You can demolish their reputation. So, you know, next time someone Googles my name, racist comes up, you can turn their friends against them by making them radioactive. People will be afraid to associate with me. You can even play with their psyches because if everything you're reading and seeing suggests that you said something atrocious, intolerable, shameful, you'll internalize that. I, I can tell you this as a gay American. You'll think, oh, there must be something wrong with me. I should never have said that. I should never have even thought it. Polls now show that 60% of Americans and an even higher proportion, more like two-thirds of students, say that they are reluctant to express their true political viewpoints for fear of social consequences of one kind or another. One-third of Americans, and by the way, this is true left, right, and center, this is not limited to conservatives, now say that they are worried about losing their job or career opportunities if they say their true views about politics. Yet another study, some people found that, you know, it's hard to measure, but that the level of chilling right now, self-censorship and chilling in the U.S. is approximately four times the level at the height of the McCarthy era. And these are all the people who are worried about, you know, if I use the, the wrong pronoun, will I be blown up? But you don't know what it is, because remember, as you just said so importantly, this is about the use, the weaponization of fear. Counselors don't want you to know what's safe to say. They want to decide that. So at any given moment, they can blow you up about anything. And the point here is to make you so demoralized that you'll just shut up. I love what you just said. You said you, not the thing. So I want to get into what you think about cancel culture now. But for me, the thing that I find the most horrific about it is that it is about canceling a person, not canceling a bad act. I am a firm believer in ethical resilience. I believe that, you know, we all make mistakes. I believe institutions make mistakes. And that one of the strongest things we can do ethically is to think about how we recover from those moments when we all have these inevitable errors in judgment or perhaps worse. But the idea that you're going to cancel a person to me is not about accountability. It certainly is not about learning from our mistakes. It is weaponization and warfare. It's epistemic warfare. Yeah, but the point you just made is so crucial. The great innovation of constitution knowledge, science, journalism, and all that is, as Karl Popper put it to paraphrase, we kill our hypotheses instead of each other. Now that's a very new idea because 
What did you do with a heretic in the past? Someone who had the wrong idea about God? Well, you burned them. That's how you got rid of that hypothesis. Societies cannot learn that way because people are afraid to make errors. And if they're afraid to make errors, they're afraid to venture hypotheses. And they're also afraid to be corrected for making errors. So along comes the constitution of knowledge and it says, wait a minute, let's flip this over. Let's completely change the ethos. Everyone makes errors. Those are going to be the raw material for knowledge because we're going to set all of society people and institutions to work hunting for each other's errors. And guess what happens to you if you're in error? You're not taken out and shot. You lose the argument. And that's it. You get to try again and again and again. Advancing the debate and advancing the pursuit of knowledge. Yeah. And the reason this vaccine is in my arm right here is not that science is better at avoiding errors or scientists than other humans. It's that the constitution of knowledge, the system we have, makes its errors incredibly quickly and harnesses millions of expert minds around the world to find those errors incredibly quickly, it can go through whole haystacks in a matter of hours to find the needles of truth inside. It's astonishing, but it all rests on the ethic that you just mentioned, which is we punish our errors instead of each other. So canceling flips that and it says, no, one error, you're out. Your reputation is destroyed. Your life is destroyed. Maybe you're fired and there's no escaping it. It's a zero learning environment, but it is a humanity destroying environment. At least, it, you know, it destroys individuals. People only fear getting fired if institutions will fire them because when they were 19, they sent an inappropriate, terrible tweet. And they have since learned from the error of their ways and don't do that anymore. But nonetheless, they're getting fired when they're 25 or 30. A lot of this fear, you know, could it be stopped if institutions stood up for individuals and said that professor or that employee made a terrible mistake? We don't condone that. We don't tolerate racism here. We don't tolerate X kind of behavior here. Nonetheless, there's there has been learning or there has been demonstrated moving on. And if institutions made it less easy, respond to the cancelers. The answer to your question is, is yes, of course. And this is why consistently I try to emphasize the importance of institutions. If you're just an individual, um, you're pretty much helpless. If your employer says, you know what? Uh, Susan said something controversial. I don't even necessarily disagree with it or think it's wrong, but, but there's now a campaign on Twitter. She's very controversial. We might get boycotted. And there are a lot of other people who can do Susan's job. So Susan's out the next day, right? That's a corporation responding to incentives. And there's very little you can do about it as an individual. But it does represent a corruption of institutional values because in a reality-based society, you have to allow people to mis make mistakes and get on with their lives. And that is especially true in academia, the heart of the reality-based community. I mean, you know, I don't necessarily expect Trader Joe's or whatever to stand up for truth, although they did so, mm -hmm. props to them. But I do expect it in academia. And here's the problem. A small group of people on campus who are very outspoken and frankly, quite in many cases, illiberal, they do not respect the constitution of knowledge, free speech, science, any of that. They want power. They want political control. They can mobilize at the drop of a hat against a professor or student, demand an investigation, often get one, weaponize course evaluations, use social media to shame. In that kind of environment, no one wants to speak out because it's just too much trouble. You know, I'd rather graduate in two years and get on with my life. So what makes a difference here is when the institution itself clearly states its values on day one, it's, it's too late when the crisis comes. And they should put, for example, in the course catalog, 
uh, they should sign the Chicago principles, which are free speech principles that 75 or more universities have signed. They should tell students entering, we have one trigger warning for your four years here, and, and, and here it is. You're going to, at any moment, without notice, encounter ideas that may shock, offend you, seem wrongheaded, or bigoted, blasphemous. We call that education. They should say this. And then when the counselors come, the institutional position should be, oh, no, you don't. A good example of that is, you know, usually what happens is the counselors come and the administration of the university or corporation says, oh, gosh, sorry, we'll make it right. We are so, so, so sorry. We'll do an investigation and maybe fire someone. So that happened at University of Chicago, I think, in April. A faculty member did a tweet or something on social media, and then the usual thing happened. Several hundred grad students ganged up and said, this is outrageous. This endangers our safety. This needs to be investigated. President of President Zimmer, University of Chicago president, put out a short one-paragraph statement that said, in effect, we at University of Chicago believe in freedom of speech. We don't take positions on everything individuals here may or may not say. This professor was exercising freedom of speech. There's nothing that happened here to investigate. End of story. So then what happened at University of Chicago? Unfortunately, Susan, the alumni rose up in protest. The donors stopped giving. The students stopped applying. And the university burned to the ground. Well, Of course, none of that happened. What happened was nothing because the university stated its values clearly, said, this is our ethos. You all know that. This is why we're here. The counselors moved on in search of softer targets. So that's where the courage comes from. It's not just individuals reaching into our soul. So that's very important. About a lot of the corporate organizations that are also kind of willing to respond to counselors that are willing to, because they fear, it's again, fear. It's very understandable fear of shareholders, fear of consumers, which isn't to say anybody should be condoning racist remarks or that, but I think it takes articulating not just what the values are, but here's how we're going to apply them. Here's how we're going to implement them upfront. And then it's clear for everybody. It requires some social support too. One thing that I'm hoping will happen a group called the Free Speech Union, which started in the UK and now has come to the US, something they're talking about doing, which I support, is creating a voluntary code of conduct for corporations that basically says, we will not fire people for exercising their First Amendment rights outside the workplace. And if they commit to that and make that clear up front, they're telling the counselors, don't come here. And that would be helpful, that kind of institutional setting of ethics and values. Well, and that is indeed one of the most frequent questions I get from corporations, which is how do we manage what we allow people to do outside the workplace? It's become even more complicated during COVID and with social media, with the internet, the blurred lines between what is the workplace and what isn't the workplace. But let let me ask you this, in terms of uh, just you personally, what are the three or four values that you think we most need to come back to as a society in order to restore this commitment to the constitution of knowledge? Well, that extends beyond the constitution of knowledge to the US constitution and and civic virtues generally because they overlap. The first is truthfulness and factuality. And that means just because some narrative seems subjectively right to me or expresses the experience of an oppressed minority or seems to expose a larger truth about the world doesn't make it factual. And if you're operating in the constitution of knowledge, Accuracy matters. 
the equivalent of that in the U.S. Constitution was outlined by Lincoln in a great speech he gave when he was still in his 20s, which is lawfulness. He said that lawfulness, adherence to the law, has to be America's sacred religion. He was looking at a country that might broke up, break up, and of course, he wound up governing that country. And he thought it might break up because people were taking the law into their own hands and lynching. So factuality in the epistemic world and lawfulness in the world of the Constitution. So here's, here's another huge one, super undervalued. That's the value of compromise in the U.S. constitutional world and persuasion in the epistemic world. And again, those things are related. And they're both saying, look, no matter how strongly you believe that you're right and entitled to whatever it is that you want to say or do, you're going to have to bring others with you. And if you don't do that work and if you don't succeed, well, you won't get what you want. The whole constitution, U.S. constitution, is a compromise forcing mechanism. That's why it's got all these checks and balances. The whole constitution knowledge is a persuasion forcing mechanism. It says it's not good enough for you to assert it. You have to prove it to lots of people who disagree with you. And that's a positive value. Too often we think of compromise as splitting babies, you know, as something that's, that diminishes our integrity and our ethics. It's the opposite. It's one of the highest forms of human behavior because it keeps society stable and introduces new ideas. Usually, often the compromise is better than either of the starting proposals. So compromise and persuasion is another big one. And then a third that I've mentioned is one we talked about earlier, which is forbearance. You got to be willing to lose sometime. So these are all fundamentally personal qualities that are absolutely necessary to the societal phenomenon of, of constitutional knowledge, or indeed, as you say, to, to the U.S. Constitution. I mean, I think compromise is also part and parcel of the need to be able to navigate the gray more generally. But it's scary to hear you say those three values. I mean, they're inspirational, but in today's world, clearly we are not living by them. I'm, I'm sure that for the many who read this book, there will be a lot of great learning. But I hope that as a society, we can come to see these words differently. I, I hope so, too. And I think that the two of us, Susan and John, should start with the two of us. Have we done as much as we can, not just to live by these values, but to promote them? The trolls and the demagogues and the cancelers, they have nothing positive to argue. They can destroy, but they, they cannot create. They cannot put a vaccine in my arm. They cannot deliver peace or prosperity. And I think it partly starts with, with us understanding better the values and norms of both of our constitutions and more confidently making that case. So I think it, I think it starts with us. Well, I, I certainly, you know, I, I'll take the challenge. Um, but I, I just want to end by, by saying, I, you know, I think there's nothing in what you said that suggests that we should tolerate racism or that we should not be truthful about past horrors and tragedies and assure that they don't happen again. What breaks my heart, I think more than anything that's going on today, is seeing people like me, members of minorities. So, as I mentioned, I'm a member of three, and I'm a homosexual American born in 1960. In the world I was born in, I was mentally ill. People like me were subjected to shock therapy. Alan Turing, hero of World War II in Britain, because he was homosexual, was convicted of, of sexual misconduct and forced to endure a horrible thing called chemical castration. That was the world I was born into. We couldn't work for the government. We couldn't get security clearances. We were in danger on the street. We were denounced as an insult, um, as, an, as a stench in God's nostrils. 
this hate, it didn't come from people getting up every morning and saying, what new form of hatred can I invent against minorities, gay people and others? It came from fear and from ignorance. It's the point you're making earlier. And the solution to fear and ignorance is truth. And that's what we did. That's how gay people won our rights. We showed that they were wrong. We held up their views to examination. Free speech, the constitution of knowledge, that is the only safe space for minorities. And where you see societies that allow those rest, robust debates to go on, including some obnoxious ideas, you will see moral progress. You will see the withering away of things like the diagnosis of homosexuality as mentally ill, or for example, slavery, or the kind of conversation we're having in America now, the next stage of an awakening. In a society that does not allow those debates to happen, that insists rather on imposing orthodoxies and cultism, that cancels people if they say the wrong thing, you will see fear and ignorance and oppression. So I say to my, my friends who in the LGBT world, you know what? The constitution of knowledge is our best friend and in the long run, our most important friend. So please defend it. Everybody's best friend and in the long run, most important friend. Thank you so much. This has been an incredible discussion. The book is extraordinary. I know so many people are going to enjoy it and learn from it. I was delighted to be here and I hope we find ways to continue our conversation. Absolutely.